try to make it through the first 14 verses here, uh, having touched on the salutation and greeting by Paul here in Ephesians 1. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 3. A couple of these we hit, but there's just a number of lists, uh, a, a number of things that are listed here that are just awesome. And what we need to keep in mind here is this is about God. This is about God's plan. So much of the time, uh, we in our relationship with God, we it's it's about us. <laughs> you know, what can God bring to us? What can God bless us with? What can he help us with? And we are poor and needy people. I don't want to minimize that. But this is to be a night where we reflect upon God's purpose, God's plan. We're, you and I are involved in a God plan that's so fantastic and so beyond our ability to comprehend. It is, if we could just stop for a moment and get out of ourselves and stop thinking that Christianity and being saved is all about us. No, it's about God and his glory. And when that, we have that paradigm shift, it's then we, we, be, we just sit before him in awe and wonder. Now let's think about this. These plans, as we've read here, uh, uh, that God has are, are purposed from before the foundation of the world. So we have no idea really what was going on before the foundation of the world. I mean, we have a few hints. We know that God created angels and that there's a civilization of angels that have existed before mankind ever entered into the picture. And, and then God decided that he wanted to, and we'll read some of the things that he decided to do here in these verses, but he decided to create mankind. And apparently there was uh, one individual in particular that wasn't too happy about that. And he became the adversary. We refer to him as the, the adversary, or Satan, that's what the word Satan means, the, the adversary. Lucifer and all. And God went ahead with his plan, created man, put him in the garden. And this, dis uh, rebel, this rebel who was disappointed in God's idea decided to come in and meddle with it. And unfortunately for us, our first parents succumbed to his deception and we rebelled against God and therefore that mankind, that family of humanity that was to come through Adam Eve, uh, we're now a fallen race. We now were under the control and the dominion of the adversary. And this is uh, what the Bible talks about. It talks about these rebellions that have taken place and God's plan uh, to uh, bring about the glorification of mankind. That was, and you'll see that in, in our study here, ultim the ultimate end of bringing this mankind into a glorified position to serve with God throughout all eternity. And it's been interrupted by this rebellion that happened there in the garden. And so we see not only that rebellion, but as we go through the scriptures, we have another rebellion in chapter 6 of Genesis where these other fallen angels joined with Lucifer and they sought to defile God's creation in more ways than just co cohabitating with the daughters of men and creating a hybrid race, the Nephilim and all. And that was part of the reason that God had to put an end to that um, because it would have led to utter destruction of mankind. So he wiped out all but eight people and started afresh. 
And then he took 70 of those angelic beings, the sons of God, these angels uh, that at that point had not uh, fallen, but he put them in charge of the nations. This would be chapter uh, 10 and 11 uh, in chapter 10 uh, of Genesis specifically. Uh, we know this because of Deuteronomy 32, and you can look this up. Um, and those 70 angels decided that they didn't really want to obey the Lord's command, and they uh, decided they wanted the nations to follow themselves, them. So they became these the gods of the nations. And this, you need to understand this little bit of a uh, forte, this motif in a sense, because it's a thread that goes throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, if you remember and recall uh, what happened in Genesis or Exodus, what was uh, what was the war going on between Pharaoh and Yahweh? I don't know who Yahweh is, this God. I don't know him, and I'm not going to obey him. Well, it, so it became Yahweh against the gods of the Egyptians. And so uh, the, these uh, fallen beings were worshipped by mankind. And so we see this allotment in chapter 10 of Genesis, and then chapter 11 we see this, see this specific rebellion what does it tell us there? It happened at the Tower of Babel. It, it, that let us make, build a tower to heaven. So we're going to have this, mankind is going to have this interaction between with these gods, not Yahweh, but the gods, so they're this other dimensional beings. And let's make a name for ourselves. Not, we don't want to be under the name of Yahweh. And God, and how does and how does the Lord respond to all this? The same way He responded to the rebellion in eternity past with Satan. He, okay, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you've done what you've done. What did He do with the rebellion in the garden? Okay, it's done. Here's what you're going to have to do, Adam and Eve, if you're going to have fellowship with Me. You're going to have to have sacrifice to cover this, and atone for your sins. But God backs off. He He back. You, you want to rebel and interact with the sons of the daughters of men, so to speak? Then the Lord backs off. Chapter, chapter 11, let's confuse the language, but okay, you want to serve those gods? I'm going to do mine. I'll, I'm going to make my own nation. And that's what we see in chapter 12. So we see this pattern of God. He doesn't overreact to rebellion. He has his plan. His plan uh, from our perspective, it looks like it's getting off track. But he has foreknowledge, which we can't really grasp. And he knows what's going to happen. And note this, that predestination is always tied in with foreknowledge. And predestination, you know, is uh, something we're going to talk about tonight. Predestination is not predetermination. God doesn't predetermine this is the way it's going to be in no other way. You, you don't, in other words, you have choice. You will always have choice. And there are ramifications that will come with the choices you make. And that's all on you. God already knows what the choices you're going to make. And so he, he, he and sometimes in his things that he has be predetermined because it's his plan, he does get involved because he is, it's his plan. Other times he just lets it all play out. Now that, think about how awesome this is. How awesome a God that we serve. We have a, an innumerable company of angels 
that have the ability to choose, the fallen and the unfallen, both alike. Everybody that God has created in his image have the ability to choose. And some rebelled, and the same thing with humanity. There are those uh, we, that were faithful to God, we love God, we want to do God's will, but there are those who are in rebellion against God. But God in, in, in never violates any of his created ones' free will, their ability to choose. Every choice that I have made in my life, I will answer to God for. And it will, I won't be able to say, oh, well, it was your fault, God. No, it's, it's my choice. I chose to do what I did, and therefore it's on me. And it's like that for everyone. What's a, I'm, the point I'm getting to here is what's amazing to me is that God is allowing all these free moral agents in both the seen world that we see and the unseen world that we cannot see to work out, and eventually his plan will come to pass. He will be glorified. That is a mighty God who's able to allow his created ones to choose as they want and still have the end outcome that he planned and purposed. Is that enough to blow your mind? It blows my mind. I, I think about it on a regular occasion, like, wow, Lord. And so when we read these verses here, it's not about us. It's about God. It's about God's plan. You know, when we read some of these verses, we automatically, you know, in our self-centeredness, like, oh, well, I was chosen by God. Yeah, well, okay, but let's, let's break it down. Let's see, what, what are we, what's God really saying through Paul here? And so uh, it's about here, this, these verses, 3 through 14, are about what God has determined to do. And whatever God determines to do is good. Why? How do we know that? Because he's good, and God can do nothing. God can do nothing but good in that regard. And so this is a beautiful, beautiful verses that sort of bring together what God has determined to do. And let's begin in verse 3, and I'll just read through these. And then we're just going to go through one at a time, just the things that are listed here by Paul in this little uh, treatise here. Blessed be God the f- and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both are which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. 
So let's look at the first thing here. We are blessed. We enjoy sacred delight. We are, uh, literally means prosper, prosperous. We've been prospered, as it were, uh, by God with every spiritual blessing. Notice it's every spiritual blessing. There's nothing this side of heaven that we lack from a spiritual standpoint. All that is necessary for us to live now until we're taken to heaven has been supplied to us. And notice it's you know nine times here, it's in Him. You get the idea that, that all this happens because we are in Christ. Nothing that we've worked for, nothing that we've earned, it's all because we're in Christ. We'll speak on that as we make our way through this. But these spiritual blessings are in the heavenlies. And so they're not something that we look for in the temporal realm. What he, the, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. The, the riches and the blessings that he's talking about are eternal. Therefore, they have to do with our, the eternal part of our being, not what we see, not the flesh, not the temporalness of life, but our souls and our spirit. They're, they're now and forever. And this is a, a wonderful thing. I, it's like I have this heavenly bank account of all that I ever need if I will just simply draw upon it. These believers apparently were living like they were bankrupt. They're beggars. They're, you know, not to, not, not to knock our homeless people, but they were believers who were living in spiritual dilapidation, if you will, because they were not drawing upon what was available to them. Just, it'd be no different than a guy out here in the street that doesn't really know that he's got a, an uncle that's left him billions of dollars. But before his uncle died, he wasn't able to locate his relative. Therefore, this heir who's living in the streets has no idea that he could be living in a mansion if he wanted to. He would have all the, the del- physical delights he wanted if he could just have access to it. And I think that's the way a lot of Christians live. They don't, we don't realize what God has provided for us. And there's reasons uh, for that. But it's there. It's there for us. And this really, this provokes me. This encourages me. Man, Lord, I want everything that you have for me. I don't want to live like a beggar. I want to I I draw close, you know. And so we can live on what God has provided. Now let's get, let's, how does this really play out? What was God's word? God always keeps his word. God always keeps his promise. God has promised the glorification of the, of the human race, of those who believe. That's going to happen. He's promised that. What did he promise Israel? He promised them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is your land. And yet Moses leads them out and leads them up to the edge of the promised land. And then God takes them away. And now it's up to Joshua to take them in. Was Joshua's prayer, oh, God, give us the land? No. It was God, help us take the land. It's there. It's provided. But they had to cross the river. They had to, wherever they put their foot, it became theirs. And this is what I'm trying to communicate. These spiritual blessings are ours. Jesus died. He bled and died to provide this for us. And they are not ours until we take the step and say, I want that. I'm claiming this. And, 
And this is what we have to do. We have to want it. We have to go after it. There are those who just think all they have to do is ask. Well, Joshua and the Israelites could have asked all they wanted on the east side of the Jordan. And guess what? They'd have still be on the east side of the Jordan. You know, and we, so there's, there's, a, there's a human responsibility to take steps and trust God for the results. That's the point. But notice in verse 4, another thing that God did, it, just as uh, he chose us in him. And we know that that means to pick out or to choose. God is the one that's acting in his own interests here. It's what he is interested in. And this is not that we chose him, he chose us. Because it was what he wanted to do. What he determined to do. He picked you out and chose you for himself. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Now, for those of you who are, have children, or you have nephews and nieces at work, I suppose, there's just something about that. You just love them. Your grandchildren especially, right? You just, I love you. You're mine. <laughs> well, multiply that times infinity. That's how God feels about every individual that's been created. Don't worry about that bug. He'll go away. <laughs> now, what did he choose us for? Not well for himself, but in, in that was to be holy. Holy and without blame before him in love. When you think about, you know, the earth's atmosphere is, you know, air. <gasps> we breathe it in. Do you know what the atmosphere of heaven is? It's love. It's love. No, that's because we don't need oxygen there. We are going to live on, in and on the love of God forever. And then God wants us to live like that. Realize that you are, because you belong to God, you have a responsibility to keep yourself clean, to keep yourself undefiled. Don't be doing those things that you know soil yourself, so to speak. Just stay away. And when you do overstep, because we get dirty walking in the dirt of this earth, come to the labor of his word and wash yourself. Cleanse yourself. You know, if the Israelite ate some food that wasn't kosher, then he was unclean for the day, and he had to wash his body. That's what you do. When you blow it and you overstep, you cross the line, acknowledge it, and wash yourself. And that's, that's the way we live. To be without blame means just you're free from those faults. You, you overcome. You know, it's going back to Eden in that sense, in that perfect loving environment where God fellowships with us. Verse 5 talks about predestination, having predestined us to the adoption as sons. So there's your, you know, marking out ahead of time. Again, predestination is always based upon God's foreknowledge, and that's something that you, we can understand the the definition of the word, but to comprehend foreknowledge, it escapes us. To know everything that can ever be known. <laughs> okay, you get it. And so, the thing about predestined, it's more, it's more about the what and not the who. See, we want to take this and think, well, some people were predestined for salvation and others were not. Don't go there. That's not what this is talking about. This is more about the what. It, it was 
what was predestined in this plan and what he determined was that everyone who gets believes is going to be adopted into my family. They're no longer going to be under the throne and under the rule and control of the adversary. Everything belongs to him. He said, you know, he had a right to every soul that sinned and they were his. And that's why, we're, that's why Paul says that we're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so God says for all those that are being translated and taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, they are going to be adopted into my family, which means they have full rights and heir of all, of all the things that I have. That's the power of adoption. You know, it'd be like you, you were naturally born into a rich family and you have all this. And it's just, you just have a, you know, kind of like the angels that never fell. I mean, they just, they're rich because dad's rich, right? I mean, right? You know, but we were adopted because of the rebellion that we were born into. But we have the same rights now. That's what adoption provides for us. It's a pretty powerful, wonderful thing. And that predestination means it was marked out ahead of time. God, before the first person, before Adam breathed his first breath, God already had this all mapped out. This is what I determined to do. And that's why he says, to the praise and glory of his grace. It's a pretty cool plan, wouldn't you say? You know, we're studying First Peter here. And uh, men and the women's groups. And, um, you know, that first chapter is all about salvation. And, you know, this whole, this whole salvation from Genesis all the way up through into, into the New Testament is a mysterious thing. How God's doing it and how he's pulled it off. Which thing, but Peter says, which things the angels desire to look into. God didn't tell them all his plan. He didn't tell them all that he determined. It's just sort of unfolding through human history. And they're like, they're, they're doing the same thing we do when we get enlightened. Like, wow, this is really cool. And the angels are like, this is really cool, God, what you're doing. And we didn't know you could be so gracious and merciful and all those other attributes that we appreciate, right? And this is a wonderful thing. And I, I don't know about you, but verse 6 blesses me. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now let's flip that around. How many in this room have felt rejection? How many of you, you know, when you're going through, you know, grade school and you have puppy love, <laughs> junior high, I like her, she, she likes me, and then all of a sudden she doesn't like me anymore. Crushed, <laughs> dashed, hopes dashed upon the rocks, you know. I'll never be the same. You know, rejection is a difficult thing. Some people never quite recover from it. No, you know, like my friends don't want me around anymore. I thought they were my friends, but they don't like me for whatever reason. Maybe I've done something, said something, acted in a selfish way, and therefore I'm, rep I'm repulsive to them. That feeling of rejection is overwhelming. It's devastating. You just want to run from it, and you can't seem to get away from it. You can't run fast enough or far enough to escape it. So when God says we are accepted in the beloved, that should hit us like a ton of bricks. You and I have been accepted, because, and we'll find out why, because we believe. 
We trust in the Lord Jesus. And this is, this is what happens. As soon as you believe, you're accepted. And this is good for anyone who will believe. You'll be accepted. You know, this is sort of something that when you go to a new church or you meet new people, other Christians, and you don't really know them yet. And so there's and always in that new, that stage of unfamiliarity with one another, there's sort of, you're uncomfortable. And the, but you, after you, you know, hang around and you break the ice a little bit, then you're, you start feeling accepted. And then after a while you feel like, yeah, this is my family. And then you begin to take ownership. You know, God's called me here. I'm going to serve. This is the progression that we have when we get involved in a local church, in a local body of Christ. And this is a natural thing. But people who come and, and uh, you know, I'm not, everybody's at a different point in their spiritual walk. This is just an observation, okay? Not I'm judging people here. Just an observation. It takes a while for some people. You know, some people don't like big crowds. Some people, you know, they're very tight to the vest with who they are and, and they don't want to disclose. And that's fine. And, and so it, it takes a while for them to, to, to join us in the back, you know, and, and break bread. That's why breaking bread and sharing a table with someone is so critical. And I would say that to our group here tonight. We need to kind of be sensitive to that. You know, like, you know, instead of going back there and saying, hey, just going to hang out with my friends, the ones I'm really acquainted with, the ones I really feel accepted by, right? Maybe I should pay attention to, like, hey, that's the first time that couple or that person's been back here. Let me go talk, let me go help them feel accepted. See, that's maturity. That's growth. That's what, that's what the fellowship is all about. And so uh, I just love that, that we're accepted and we're honored with blessings. And what that means from God's perspective to us is that we are honored. God honors us. What, is, what does it say in, in um, 1 Samuel chapter 2 in relationship to uh, those who were obedient to God? God said right up front, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, which means not willing to obey and count my commands as not that important will be counted as nothing in a sense. Paraphrase. So you you honor the Lord, you will be honored. That's the way he rolls. Verse 7. This is another thing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his grace. So there's two of them there. Redemption and forgiveness. The first one, they're tied together. We're redeemed through the blood. We covered that pretty in depth on this past Sunday in Exodus 17. So if you didn't hear that, you might want to check it out because when you apply the blood, that's where the power is. That's where life is. Without the application of it, remember, and I will repeat this, the children of Israel required in Exodus 12 to slay the lamb, atoning, sacrifice through blood, but it wasn't just slaying the lamb and catching the blood. It was the application of the blood that caused the death angel to pass over. It had to be applied to the doorpost and the lintel. That's symbolic of your heart and your soul. If that, if you, an Israelite could have slayed that, partaken of it, and not applied that to his door, and he was a, would be a dead man come morning. What does that say to us? You can believe in the blood of Jesus. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you believe in him, you'll go to heaven. But until you apply it, 
It does not become a reality. Until we receive the redemption provided through the blood, none of this will become a reality. We must be born again. That's what happens. That's what it's Paul's saying when he, about that translation from darkness to light. At that moment, that's what born again does. You're moved. Your spirit's made alive. It's wonderful. That's what redeemed is talking about here. We, as it were, have had our debt paid. We were in debt to God with our sin. In the kingdom of darkness, everyone there has a debt to pay. It's called the sin debt. And it will be paid by someone at some time. When they stand before God, there has to be a comeuppance, and here it is. And if you have received atonement and been translated, then that debt's already been paid in the person of Christ. You stand free and completely exonerated in God's presence. This is you essentially were purchased out of the slave market. You're no longer a slave of sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. Lots of metaphors used by Paul. Redemption is through the substantiary death of Christ, substitutionary death of Christ, which, which means that God's justice that side of his holiness, that justice that demands perfection is satisfied. Something that you and I could not do apart from Christ. And the result, obviously, is forgiveness. That's what we experience. We're pardoned. You know, it's not just a pardon for yesterday's sins or today's sins. It's, it's a pardon and atonement is eternal. Thank you, Lord. You didn't earn it through good works. It was freely given to you because you believe. You could never merit that. And this is what makes it it's so unbelievably hard for some people to grasp. You mean I just got to trust God that this is what will happen? Yeah. Childlike faith. You know, I grab my little grandson and okay, not so much anymore, but he's getting too big to do this. Throwing him up in the air. And he knows I'm going to catch him. He loves that thrill, you know, that little thing that goes on in his belly when I'm, he's flying and I'm going to catch him. Yeah, that's the way it is. You know, God, God's going to catch us. and we do, it, There's no fear. It's all fun and games because he knows I'm going to catch him. And it should be that way. We should be joy and speak one for glory because God has a hold of me. He's not going to let me go. We read, sang it tonight. He's never going to let me down, right? Never going to let me down in that regard. So we're forgiven. Verse 9 says that we are enlightened in so many words, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So you don't know very much when you come to Christ, usually. If you were raised in a Christian home and your parents were Bible students, you learned the Bible from them, you probably got off to a really good start in that situation and that gives you a tremendous advantage when it comes to knowing the ways and purposes of God but if you were deprived of that fortunately for you and for me because I didn't grow up in a church at all I was 18 years old when I was converted I had a lot of catching up to do but I didn't have any baggage either on the other hand so I could just freely just read my Bible and let the Spirit of God speak to me and do it, do His special work in my heart 
But uh, it took me like three months to figure out that I was actually saved. <laughs> like, oh, that's what that means. Okay. You know, it's like totally like ignorant of a lot of things. You know, you know what's, how can God be everywhere? You know, there's all so many things that just so many things to take in. But this is what it's about. In all wisdom and prudence, God unveils it to us. We're not ignorant. If we want to know something, I, I want to challenge you. If you there's something in the Bible or something in your life that you cannot quite get a f- handle on, you can't just figure it out, I'm pretty sure if you will consistently ask God and diligently seek it out, you'll get an answer. That's the way he works. But he just doesn't drop it on you. A good teacher will not give you the answer, will he? He'll point you in the right direction, and then he, you know, it's up to you. That's the way God is. He's not going to just give it to you on a silver platter. Well, why not? I want him. I, I deserve this, you know. Well, you're not. Well, you might think you deserve it, but you don't need it that way. You need to grow. Your senses need to be exercised. You're lazy in your seeking, right? Uh, he knows how we are, man. He knows fallen nature. <laughs> That's the way it works. We deserve to seek it out. But I, I found that that's the way it works. I pray, and, and, and if it's, it's really not, you know what will happen? If it's really not that important to me, I'll stop seeking. That means you didn't really want it that. You know, oh, I'm satisfied. You know, they could have been satisfied in the, taking the prom- promised land at Jericho, right? That really wouldn't have worked. You have to be on the path of constantly seeking God for him. Seeking God to know him, to want to be with him. You can't stop putting your foot down in the promised land. If you want these spiritual blessings, that, that, that every one of them that are there for us, provided in heaven, is because you are walking, spiritually speaking, and you're seeking it. You can't just stay at Jericho. There's, there's, there's things that you need to learn and grow, and I need to learn and grow in. And it only happens by progressively seeking after it. And so it's, it's, it's provided, now it's on us in that regard. Sometimes we flip that around. Oh, God provide. And God's thinking, I already did. I already did. You go, go get it, son. Go get it. It's there. It's waiting for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hopefully the light comes on. That's why you don't really need to be intimidated by your future just take the next step you know I've found that God doesn't show me A through B or A through D he shows me A and after I do A guess what I see next B after B's done then what C I want well where's D at well you haven't gone through the first three yet there son You, you, you follow me it's a progressive revelation that sort of uh it's this is what enlightenment's all about it's the mystery of his will and that blesses god when we are seeking him because if we're built in such a way in our fallen condition that if we get something all of what we're seeking for right at once then we're done and that's not a good place for us to be we not to be become stagnant and then corruption sets in and that's what God, that's the reason why God has, has sort of set it up this way, to keep us in a mode of seeking so that we avoid being corrupted by our fallenness. That makes sense? I mean, it's, lo- it's very loving if you think about it. And then 
the last one here in verse 11, well, there's two more actually. Uh, we are sealed. The Holy Spirit is your ticket to heaven. It's a guarantee. In him we also have obtained an inheritance having predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according uh, to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, the down payment, until the redemption of the purchased possession. These are just wonderful things to think on. No one can take away from you what God has given to you in the person of Christ. They, Jesus said, do not fear man who's able to kill the body, but afterwards has no power. I say to you who to fear. Fear him who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. I mean, let's get it right. You know, fear the Lord. And we're sealed with this promise. It's again, the, the witness of his spirit when you know and the, His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to God, that is a sign that you uh, also have an inheritance waiting for you. You've been adopted. So everything that God has, it's kind of like this. God loved Jesus so much that He decided to give Him everything. You know, that's what Psalm 2. He, I'll, ask, ask, ask me for the nations, I'll give it to you. That's what Yahweh says to the Son. And so he, the, it all belongs to Jesus. He, he, he bought and paid. He's got the title deed. It's all his. And you know what Jesus did? He said, I just love you guys so much. I'm giving it to you. <laughs> we have a tremendous inheritance. I don't think I really understand what that means. You know, it's, it's something that will happen throughout eternity. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Woo. You are the purchased possession. You were bought with a price. That's why you can't do what you want to do. Self-willed Christians who just want to do, I just, I want to be content with just being saved. I'm okay just being a convert. Forget about being a disciple. Okay, you can choose that. Will your eternal destiny be affected? I don't think so. But your spiritual growth will be retarded. You'll never become the man of God. You'll never be the woman of God that God wants you to be until you are willing to take those steps. The purchase possession means that you are not your own. You belong to God. It's now not my will, but your will be done. And that is hard. That's where the battle lies, isn't it? That's the my... My self-will over God's will. Becoming a living sacrifice is probably the most important, difficult thing that you and I face. To daily, as Paul says, to die daily to self and, and self-will and purpose. So you make your, and I, we all make our plans for the day. I don't have a problem with that. I think we're to set goals. We're, you know, we have to set our foot down and take what we feel God's called us to do. We have jobs to do, we have responsibilities to maintain, all that. But the thing is, I, and I've learned this, I'm still learning this. Lord, I'll be interruptible. Guide me, redirect me. This is what I've laid out for the day, but, you know, I'm yours. 
and that's what we need to do. Just allow God to be interrupt us. I sometimes like, like, really, is that really your you, or is that the enemy? <laughs> I'm really getting tired of being interrupted here. You know, just like I told you, <laughs> like that, you know, Mr. Russ Garner that approached me uh, back in December about building that building. I'm thinking, oh no, you know, look what the opportunity that that God was trying to. I did be interruptible. I could have blew him off. Sorry, go away. You know, you just gotta. You never know. There might be angels in our wares, you know. You don't want to be blown off an angel, right? <laughs> so you know the deal. Um, just keep, I think that's, that's, that's where Paul ended this longest sentence. This is one sentence. Verses 3 through 14 is a, the longest run-on sentence in the Greek. Now, I didn't figure that out. I read that from a Greek scholar. You know, preachers get rolling, right? Man, he was on a serious roll here. But I like the way he ended it, and I, I think it really should stop us in our tracks. This is God's plan. This is what he's determined. And, and he stops with, you are the purchased possession. You belong to God. It's not about us anymore. It's about what he wants to do with our lives, because he made it specifically a very unique way for us to image him that only he knows, but he will reveal to you and to me. Father, we thank you for what is involved here, and there's much more than we've mentioned in these few minutes that we've been in this chapter, Lord. But we just ask, as it says here, uh, that you'll give us all wisdom and all understanding as we walk with you. We are simple people, Lord, that love you, and that want to obey you, and want everything that you have for our lives. And so we just yield to you and ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would keep us clean in your blood and through your word and just make us alive and sensitive to your leading, Lord. We belong to you and we wouldn't want it to be any different, Lord. So bless our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.